Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. Thank you all for joining us. We've come together today to hear from a very distinguished cardiologist, professor, and researcher in the field, Dr. Alexandra Lansky. Through Grand Rounds, Georgia Heart and clinicians in the community have access to hear from and meet great leaders and change agents in cardiology, such as Dr. Lansky and just yesterday our guest, Dr. Angela Taylor. I'd like to recognize our very dedicated education committee of Georgia Heart leaders who with their relationships help to bridge the connection to deliver this valuable education. Thank you, team. Diving right in, I'm pleased to share that today's presentation has been awarded credit for physicians, nurses, and radiologic technicians. This program is brought to you by Georgia Heart Institute with the generosity of grants from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant relationships, financial relationships with commercial interests, and Dr. Lansky will disclose her relationships in her presentation. To claim credit today, please take our survey. If you're viewing online, the link will be in the chat. If you're here in person, you can receive the QR code at the end of this session to see Jennifer Reagan outside. If you have a question for the presenters, please hold until the Q&A segment. Online viewers, feel free to drop your questions into the chat and we'll read them aloud at the end. And now, Dr. Henry will introduce Dr. Lansky. Thank you. Hey, good morning. I just want to give my relevant disclosure that she is my friend and a wonderful human being. But uh, let me just give you a little brief overview. She came to Yale in 2010 from the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, where she was the chief scientific officer for the Clinical Trials Center. And at Yale, she is the director of the Yale Heart and Vascular Clinical Research Program, as well as the Cardiovascular Research Center. She's been involved in innumerable trials of new devices in interventional cardiology and been key in their approval through the FDA, as well as a bunch of medications uh, and other things that just go on and on and on. She has over 500 publications. Um, she is the founding editor-in-chief for the Journal of the Society for Coronary Angiography and Intervention. Uh, which has, in the two years that it's been out, become perhaps the premier journal in interventional cardiology worldwide. Um, she's well known on both sides of the Atlantic and both sides of the Pacific. So let me introduce Alexandra for you. Thank you. Okay, good morning, and thank you very much. Um, it's really a pleasure and honor to be here, Glenn. It's just, uh, you know, all I can say is you're lucky to have him. We, we miss him up at Yale. Um, you know, I'm not going to try and recruit you back, but uh, we, we definitely miss you. Um, so thanks for the really nice introduction. So, so you know, I, it actually took me a long time to try and figure out what I was going to talk about today. Um, and I and I texted Glenn, I think it was last week, and I said, oh, what should I talk about? Chronic coronary syndromes or cerebral protection during TAVA. So we chose this topic. It's one that's near and dear to my heart. I've been working um, a lot on this topic, uh, on this space, if you will, um, since I came to Yale, so back in 2011, and that was actually the very same time that, as you know, TAVA was approved in the United States. So I'm going to take you through, I'm, uh, I'm approaching this more 
from the clinical trial perspective. So I'm going to be showing you a lot of um, data evidence where we are, some of the pitfalls in the clinical trials that have been done and, you know, looking forward, what can we expect? So um, here are my conflicts. Um, I do receive uh, quite a bit of research support um, for running some of these clinical programs. Uh, I'm the uh, principal investigator of the Emberline um, IDE clinical study that's ongoing uh, currently in the country, Emberlock Boston Scientific that has the, um, the Sentinel device. Um, most of the devices I'm going to be talking about are not approved, so it's all in the research space and uh, with the exception of Sentinel, and I think my comments are gonna be very measured there. So in addition to the survey at the end of this session, the quiz here, and the most important one for your CME credit is what is the name of this mountain? Um, I spend my um, summers, if you see uh, Crouch down there is my now at the time, little girl, now um, eldest daughter, she's now 22 years old. And um, anyway, so that's the quiz for, for, for the day. I'm gonna kick this off talking about trends, mechanisms, and predictors of um, stroke in TAVA. So again, TAVA was approved in this country in 2011, and you can see the adoption, pretty fast adoption here of TAVA. And in uh, 2014, it was approved for intermediate risk patients. So on that panel over there, you can see I can probably, uh, let me see here, if I can use the mouse to, can you see that? Yes, okay, great. Um, so in red here are the intermediate risk patients and then low risk patients in black. So as we see over time, we're getting more and more adoption um, of tabby, uh, tabbies in, in the country. So this is, um, I think, a landmark analysis. We're really looking at what is happening in this country. And you can see, as, as of 2018, uh, there were more TAVAs uh, done in this country uh, as opposed to surgical uh, aortic valve um, replacements. So this, you know, from a patient perspective, from an operator perspective, et cetera, is very appealing and minimally invasive. Um, shorter time in the hospital, faster recovery, et cetera. And I think most patients would much rather have a TAVA procedure um, as opposed to surgery. Now, we're here to talk about stroke. And, you know, just right off the bat, I want to say that if we want to, if we're talking about stroke with our patients and we're talking about doing a surgical versus a minimally invasive approach, um, the lowest stroke rate is going to be with TAVA. That has been shown in the randomized clinical studies of low-risk, intermediate-risk uh, patients. And you can see here in this uh, meta-analysis, this is any stroke. This is disabling stroke. If you want to reduce the stroke risk to your patient, um, a TAVA is the way to go. So I think this is a good part of the conversation that we need to have with our patients. Um, over time, we've seen, again, with the adoption of intermediate risk and low-risk uh, procedures, we've seen a reduction in the risk of the patient population. There's no question about that undergoing TAVA. 
What's interesting is when you look at the overall risks of stroke, they've been relatively constant over time. Maybe you can be convinced here that there's a slight drop over time, 2012 to 2019, but relatively constant. In red here is the 30-day stroke rates. It's about 25 to 3% overall and really not much of a change. This is actually out to, uh, to 12 months, about 4%. And remember, these are stroke rates that are reported by the sites. This is all reported into the TBT uh, registry, or this is based on CMS. So it's all uh, essentially clinically reported um, strokes. Now, you know, you might think that as uh, operators have higher volume, they have more experience, we would expect or anticipate the stroke rates to come down. In fact, that's not the case. They, they remain constant. doesn't matter what the expertise is of the operator. The stroke rates are absolutely constant over time and based on the volume of the operators. Now, we've seen for every other complication, whether it be death, vascular complications, bleeding complications, et cetera, we've seen that relationship with volume and experience and a decline in those complications, not with stroke. So what's going on with that? Um, let's talk about the mechanism. It's clearly a mechanical issue. When you look at the strokes, uh, overall 30-day stroke rates, half of those happen on day one, and about two-thirds of those happen within three days. So it's really clustered around uh, the, the procedure. And then, of course, there's the tail, and there are some strokes that happen you know, from day three to five out to 30 days, but again, the vast majority are gonna happen early, and the vast majority of disabling strokes are happening in that very early time frame. So when you, the surgeons in the room and those who are looking at these valves to say, well, yeah, of course, uh, look at this. I mean, they're degenerated valves, they're very calcified, etc. This is uh, actually really nice, simple work that one of our colleagues, actually, when uh, Glenn was at uh, Yale, Mike Mullen in London, uh, did with one of his fellows where he basically, in 60 patients, he, he did transcranial Doppler throughout the procedure to try and figure out when embolization was happening. And as you can expect, it was any manipulation of the valve, crossing of the valve, positioning of the valve, where this, they saw the most um, uh, um, embolization of debris. And, you know, uh, you're looking at this here, but you can see here, uh, these are the two most relevant times during the procedure. So procedural timing, manipulation, anything that's like extending the duration of the, of the procedure is going to increase the risk of um, embolization. So it is a mechanical issue. One of the other things that we have seen and we saw early that's quite concerning is that when you do diffusion-weighted MRI in these patients, you realize that the vast majority, anywhere from 80% to 100% of patients will have um, evidence of uh, brain injury. These are multiple infarcts, so on average, there's about four to five emboli on the brain detected on brain MRI. And when you look at these, uh, these areas, the areas of injury, and you kind of like sum them up, 
you can see that these are not trivial, anywhere from 1.5 squared centimeters to uh, 4.3. So these are pretty large areas of brain injury. Now, we know in the context of spontaneous, so in the neuro, neurology literature, we know that these lesions that are detected on brain MRI that may not be associated with an acute stroke, acute symptomatic stroke, longer term are associated with uh, physical decline, depression, dementia, etc. So there are um, some clinical consequences to this in the longer term. After TAVA, so in the context of iatrogenic um, embolization and, and neurologic injury, there, there is some evidence for neurocognitive decline, and there is evidence that this is actually linked with an increase in the stroke rate. So it's not trivial. We don't quite understand the full clinical uh, extent and consequences of these, these lesions that are acutely uh, asymptomatic, and this is something that we really need to better understand. So this was uh, a very small study, a registry that we did, um, I don't know, uh, 2011, 2012, um, in patients undergoing TAVA. And all we wanted to do was really to define these, uh, these lesions, the, the, the extent of neurologic injury. Uh, based on diffusion-weighted MRI. What, you, what we showed was that 94% of these patients had lesions after uh, TAVA. The size of these lesions, the individual lesions, were actually, on average, pretty small, so about 50 uh, cubic millimeters. Uh, the maximum uh, size of these lesions was up to about 125 cubic millimeters, but when you accumulated these, when you looked at the total volume, um, it becomes significant. So in, in this case, it was about 300 uh, cubic millimeters. So this was just kind of a benchmark of, you know, what's going on and, you know, in terms of the extent of injury. There's been a huge amount of work trying to uh, predict stroke in patients undergoing TAVA. Could we come up with a risk score where we can Id identify that patient that uh, potentially we could uh, use neuroprotection um, and prevent stroke. And this has been done time and time again. So there's many uh, predictors, patient factors, as you can see here, and they all stand to reason, like chronic uh, new onset atrial fibrillation, chronic AFib, prior stroke, etc. Many anatomical and procedural factors, as we spoke about, so any kind of manipulation of the valve, valve repositioning, longer procedure times associated with uh, procedure stroke, and then there's a little long-term risk, which is the same risk that we typically uh, think about, but also more calcium in the arch, uh, chronic atrial fibrillation, etc. cetera. Uh, the challenge is that any time we've tried to do a risk score, these are so infrequent and so unpredictable that it's actually, we haven't been successful in doing a reliable uh, risk score. So, you know, there's always these debates when you go to the conferences, which patient should we do it for all? Should we, we do it for select patient population? And the reality is that we cannot really predict which patients are gonna have this complication. All right, a few words on the clinical um, uh, consequence. I'm not going to ask you to name the, the 
the flower and what it's called. That's not part of the survey. Uh, the consequences. So stroke following TAVR is the strongest predictor of mortality. This is shown again, again, and again. Uh, this is from two uh, large registries and meta-analyses. So anywhere from four to six-fold increase in mortality at 30 days if you have a stroke. Now, one of the inter interesting things to think about is unlike acute myocardial infarction where the mortality, the death, is, is close to the event, in stroke, the death happens at a time that is, much, as you know, in, in clinical practice, at a time that's much you know, further beyond the, the die of pneumonia and other complications. But this is actually really relevant when, uh, and I'll talk about it in a, in a moment, when you think about how to design your clinical studies and the time point of the assessments. Because if you're looking at a mortality outcome, you really need to look at a longer term uh, measure. Uh, it increases healthcare costs. We know in the hospital um, costs go up, but also uh, fewer patients go home, more patients go to extended rehab, extended care and rehab, and more patients go to nursing homes. So there's definitely uh, a significant um, cost associated with this uh, complication. And then mild strokes. So again, we're looking at now intermediate and lower risk patient populations. Um, you know, what does it mean to them if, if they have even a mild stroke? Well, you can see that there's, um, you know, a, a meaningful number of these patients will become dependent. There's cognitive impairment, depression, social isolation, et cetera. So this is, you know, this is clearly uh, meaningful. This is uh, work from Megan Colwright, one of our colleagues, absolutely wonderful uh, work where she's surveying patients as to their perception of what is important to them. In our clinical studies, we always think death is the worst and then there's stroke and then there's bleeding and vascular complications and we have our own hierarchy. But what she's doing here is she's turning this around and saying, well, what patients, you know, what do you think? What's important to you? And um, it turns out that staying alive for, for patients is less important than actually being active and being independent and having fewer symptoms. So it's more about the quality of life than it is about um, staying alive. <clears throat> There seem to be uh, differences between elderly patients and younger patients. Elderly patients, for them, stroke is a fate worse than death. Obviously, for younger patients, they want to stay alive. That's really important for all of us. Uh, but also, they want to retain cognition and uh, mental acuity. So again, taking this perspective into account, I think, is, is very important. Okay, I'm going to switch a little bit and talk about uh, sort of an initiative that we that I led uh, early on <clears throat> in terms of defining neurologic endpoints. So if you look at this, um, you know, there are many, many different ways that we can define stroke. 
And this was a problem when we, when I started doing um, trials in this space because we need to make sure that trial A and trial B are defining stroke in a similar manner. And what we realized is not only is the stroke definition really important, but the ascertainment of stroke is really important. So having the interventional cardiologist or the structural cardiologist go into the ICU room and say, you know, Mrs. Smith, are you okay? And reporting whether or not a patient had a stroke is very different than if you send a neurologist into the room and they do a full neurologic exam and they're checking absolutely everything and they actually detect uh, significantly more strokes. So what we wanted to do was um, in this initiative, it's called NeuroArc, um, it was... Uh, uh, we collected a, a, a huge number of um, stakeholders in the space, including interventional and structural uh, cardiologists and, and CT surgeons. I brought in some neurologists, neuroradiologists, imagers, et cetera, uh, as well as the FDA. So this was truly a huge collaboration. We had 40 people coming together, and the whole purpose of this initiative was really to to help uh, guide us in how to assess, measure, and classify neurologic endpoints for the purpose of clinical studies so that when we report these at the end of the day, we're all talking about the same thing and we know what we're referring to. So uh, we, this is just a very nice picture. We met twice. This took actually a year to put into, you'll see there's one table that summarizes everything, but it actually took us a year to pull this together. Um, and this uh, happens to be at the Yale Club, Glenn. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it's a great place to, to have nice, nice meetings, as you can see. Um, so after a year's worth of work, this is what we condensed down our recommendations in terms of these definitions. Um, basically, there were three categories. Uh, the first one, we called it overt or acutely symptomatic stroke. So, you know, this is what you're used to, right? It's the uh, ischemic strokes, it's the hemorrhagic strokes. We wanted to pull out these, particularly in the context of TAVA, the hypoxic ischemic injury. These are patients that may, on the table, you know, have a, an arrest, have CPR, be, go to surgery, etc. It's a completely different mechanism in terms of um, stroke, and, and we felt that that was really important to kind of pull out. The second type is covert CNS injury. So we called it covert because... Uh, some have called it uh, a silent, um, a silent uh, CNS injury. We called it covert because, again, we don't know in the longer term what is happening with these patients. If they have cognitive decline, if they have more dementia, if they have, you know, et cetera, then we shouldn't really call it uh, silent because, you know, obviously there are clinical consequences to it. But acutely, there is symptomatic, and on imaging, there's evidence of brain injury. And then the third type um, is neurologic dysfunction. So they have a neurologic symptom, but they have absolutely nothing on uh, imaging. And that includes the TIAs. We always lump together stroke and TIAs. If it has the same prognosis, it really doesn't. Um, and delirium. 
So what I learned during this whole um, uh, exercise is the delirium, which happens mostly postoperatively, post in about 45 to 50% of cases is actually linked with stroke. So if you do brain imaging in these patients, about 40 to 50% of these patients will have evidence of stroke. And you've got to think about that. And it's not necessarily something that we think about. So when we did this, FDA was like, you know, all on board. This is really important for them because of, you know, what, what they're trying to sort out in these clinical studies. But they said, whatever you do, you need to be consistent with prior definitions. And that makes sense, right? We don't want to be coming up with something completely new and then all the rates are different. So our definitions are consistent with the VARC, so the Valve Academic Research Consortium definitions. Uh, basically, they look at everything, all the uh, uh, acutely symptomatic strokes, including these more global um, hypoxic ischemic uh, strokes. And we are consistent with the American Stroke Association definition. So we tick that box and, um, you know, I think, I think we met all the criteria. In the document, it's, it was a little bit more lengthy than that and goes into a lot of details of you know, how to do it and what the recommendations are. But we did recommend for uh, neuroprotection trials to use imaging, to use uh, diffusion-weighted MRI to, as, a, as a measure of effectiveness in, in, in these types of studies. Why? Because it's more sensitive than looking at just simply clinical symptoms of, um, of stroke. So that's that in terms of the, the neural arc. So let me now switch and I'm gonna talk about the evidence that we have with cerebral embolic protection. So uh, this, is, this is the landscape. I, I'm not sure you realize how many devices are out there that are gonna be tested. So the first two here, the Sentinel, I'm sure you're very familiar with it here, I don't know if you use it here, and the TriGuard have been tested, evaluated. This one is approved in the United States and in Europe. Uh, TriGuard was not approved in the United States, it was um, approved in Europe, it's no longer in use, it's no longer uh, being made, and all of these are all investigational. In blue here are devices that you're going to be hearing more about because they're currently being evaluated in IDE clinical studies, and these in, uh, in brown here are earlier stage and not in clinical studies. So let me, let me go over the evidence and sort of like more the pearls of what we've learned from, from some of these studies. It's been, uh, it's been sort of a, you know, challenging space to say the least. So Sentinel, um, currently manufactured by Boston Scientific, is a basically a very simple um, filter with these two little baskets that go here in the innominate and the common carotid. Um, they leave the left vertebral, so the posterior circulation is left unprotected. I would say that the blood flow to the posterior circulation is probably 20 to more, uh, 10 to 20 percent, not 10 percent. Um, so it doesn't provide um, complete protection. 
initial work, single center work uh, that has been pooled in this analysis was fabulous. Huge amount of reduction here in stroke rates. Uh, procedural stroke reduced by 65%. Death and stroke reduced by 66%. Disabling stroke reduced by 84%. Bring it on. This is great. The best device you've seen. It's a miracle device, right? And again, these are all single center um, studies that have been pooled, and this is a propensity-matched analysis. Beware. That's just my piece of wisdom. Beware when you see these kinds of results. Um, so here's our IDE clinical study. So this is the study that was done for approval of this device. 345 patients. They have to show, to get through FDA, you have to show safety and efficacy. Safety was a composite of all-cause death, stroke, and kidney injury, stage 3. And they showed that they were safe. So it was actually compared to a performance goal, but even when you look compared to the controls in the study, it was safe, not worse. The efficacy endpoint was based on imaging, brain diffusion-weighted MRI, in the protected areas. So they sliced the brain looking at only those areas that were protected. They didn't look at the posterior circulation. Let's forget that, right? And, but sadly, they were not able to show a difference. So numerically lower, not significant. And if you dig into the appendix and you look at the total brain and the uh, diffusion-weighted MRI results in the total brain, there's really absolutely no difference, I can assure you. What they did do is they collected all the debris and they took lots of pictures. And they took the debris, sent it down to Renuva Mani down in Washington. She did a beautiful analysis. She's the pathologist. She showed that there was debris in all cases. And among the debris, she found some really interesting things. So tissue valve, foreign material from the catheters, necrotic core. So it's really collecting. It's telling you that you know during these procedures, as there's friction across the native valve, um, there, you know, some very interesting pieces of material are being released. Um, these are the clinical outcomes. So stroke was reduced by about 40%, not significant. It was not powered for that, but about a 40% reduction, uh, non-significant. And a post hoc analysis looking at 72 hours, once again, dramatic reduction, 63%. And let's go for that. Um, again, not quite significant. Yes, it's a strong signal. And, you know, yes, there's, you know, I think, I think it makes the point that there may be something here and, you know, we need to persevere. It's probably not the best device. Anyway, this goes to panel. So the FDA reviews this and it goes to panel. And as you know, it's approved. And it's interesting. It was, it's a, it's a safe device. It was approved. It failed the efficacy endpoint. And Jeff Bora, who is actually one of the panelists, it was actually a majority vote in favor of this device. This is what he says. Intuitively, it seems like a very good thing. Um, even though I really can't interpret what it means, uh, the images look better when a filter was used than when it wasn't used. And if I had to choose, I'd rather have this thing in than not. And it was really on the pictures and the gestalt that FDA actually approved this device. And here we are. So, and I think FDA, 
to this day is probably regretting this decision because once you have an approved device, that becomes the predicate for everything that comes behind it. I will say it's it's safe and you know nobody's gonna contest that, but all right, so that's that. So moving on, uh, the device now is in the hands of Boston Scientific and they decide to do a large scale randomized clinical study looking at stroke as the primary endpoint. Well, that's what we all wanted to know. How effective is this device in reducing stroke? They look at stroke at 72 hours. Remember what I told you, yeah, if you can find my phone and turn it off, sorry, I can hear that. Um, remember what I told you about death. So death is gonna happen down the road. They looked at their primary endpoint here at 72 hours, period. It was all stroke. Um, and so the first question is Sentinel safe? We, we saw in the initial small study, it was safe. Now we've got three, you know, 3,000 patients. And on all counts, it confirmed that it was safe. There's no difference in stroke. There's no difference in death rates. There's no difference in um, vascular complications, kidney injury, et cetera. It is safe. So we're comfortable with that. That's great. Um, how about effectiveness? Is it effective? And sadly, again, in their primary endpoint, they didn't meet it. They did have a 20% reduction here in overall stroke rates, but it was not significant, 2.9 to 2.3. So here we are, 3,000 patients down the road with failed study. I mean, that's what it is. However, so the, the dialogue, the, the discussion is all around this. So among these strokes, so a component of overall stroke is disabling stroke, and that was significantly reduced uh, by 61%. Well, that seems like a lot. It was an absolute reduction of 0.8%. So here we are, and the question is, how do we interpret this? We love to debate this. Some will say, well, you know, it's a failed trial, doesn't mean anything, it was never pre-specified. Other people, including myself, I will admit, say, well, you know, can we really discount this? Can we ignore the fact that, you know, there's a reduction here in disabling stroke? It's the worst kind of stroke. It's associated with the highest mortality. You know, it's really a problem. And when you look at all the subgroup analyses that they look, look at disabling stroke, it was so consistent across the board, every single subgroup, it was reduced. So I think there's something here, to me, the way I interpret this, they failed their endpoint. You know, the benefit is numbers needed to treat to reduce uh, a, a disabling stroke was 125. It's a huge cost um, to society, to institutions, et cetera. So, but to me, the way I interpret this, and I and, and I always say this is a first-generation device. It's not, it's not perfect, but there's a signal here. We know that, you know, if we can, if we can only find the device that is not gonna be, you know, that will cover all three cerebral vessels, maybe we will get there. And I keep on having hope that we're, we're gonna be able to reduce this complication. Um, next in the, in the pipeline here for Sentinel is this huge trial called the BHF. This is a UK-based government-funded study, BHF Protect Tavi, 8,000 patients. 
exactly the same protocol, 72 hours. I think they're missing the endpoint. They need to kind of push it out and look at mortality in there, but that's a different story. And then at the end of the day, when the UK study is done, then they're going to pull it with the protected TAVA, and they'll have 11,000 patients, and maybe we will see a reduction in stroke with Sentinel. Question is, what's the you know numbers needed to treat there, and what is the clinical value? Again, we'll, we'll be debating that when we get those results. Um, prior to protected TAVA, this was kind of like a snapshot of what was happening at institutions in the country. About 30% actually had Sentinel on the, sh on the shelf. Only about 10, 12% of patients actually were receiving the device. My guess is that that has gone down. I'd love to hear your opinion, but I'm pretty sure that's gone down since um, since protected TAVA has been done. All right, I'm going to shift over to the work that I've been involved with. It's a completely different device. It's a um, deflection device. It's a device that kind of sits in the arch of the, uh, in the roof of the aorta. It covers all three cerebral vessels. This was the first generation, pretty flimsy looking device. It had this what we call stabilizers, this thing that kind of poked up in the innominate and these two things that kind of were supposed to get hold in place. This was the first generation. It went to this, this other um, updated version that was supposed to be self-stabilizing, self-positioning, uh, and just much better. So... Um, we did a lot of work, initial uh, work uh, with the device showing that, again, it was safe. Um, uh, it seemed to have signals of benefit. These are the two IDEs. So we did one approval study for the first generation, this, the, the flimsy one, and essentially showed, just I'm going to cut to the chase here, it was not safe. There were more complications, more vascular complications because it had to have another access. Um, and in fact, had no impact on strokes. It was not safe, not effective. We did diffusion-weighted MRI in every patient. We found something really interesting. I mean, every time you do a study, even if it's a failed trial, you learn tidbits. So what we learned from this is that this device, as flimsy as it was, seemed to reduce the big lesions on the big things that we saw in the controls. We didn't see in with the Trigon device but we tended to see more of the little ones. And that was kind of disturbing. And it raises the question as to, you know, these little spots, dots that we see after the procedure, what do they mean? And I'm going to come back to that because we've done some nerdy work to try and try and address that question. Uh, so that was reflect one, didn't work. Uh, reflect two was looking at the next generation. And again, you know, you don't need to look at the details, but the bottom line is it wasn't safe. So you can see here composite safety at 30 days, 16% versus seven in the controls. And again, we failed our efficacy endpoint. It was a, a, a very kind of nice hierarchical looking at win rate ratio. It's very trendy sort of efficacy endpoint. We failed it. So um, on both counts, this device, first generation, second generation didn't work. Um, lessons learned. Number one, um, the device actually didn't stay in place. They would position it there. And then as you come over with the TAVI system, the, the uh, filter would kind of 
be pulled forward because they had a little hook on the front end, it would pull forward and then snap back. Every case. Some of them would twist. There was all sorts of issues. I ended up calling it the, the, the cheese grater device because I think it really kind of like described very well what I thought was going on, which was all this movement is actually causing problems. So as we think about these devices, we have to think about the performance. And I think the FDA is really kind of clued into this. But the other observation, again, is that you can see this nicely here, controls treatment. It, it definitely seems to be reducing the big lesions. So that's good. And it definitely seemed to be increasing. This is like a, a, a subset. But overall, when you looked at the overall patient population, definitely seemed to be increasing the small lesions. So again, probably an effect of like all this motion. So as we look at new devices, this is what we need to be focused on. All right, so where do we go from here? Um, you know, again, I think the FDA is now pegged with Sentinel and we need to, you know, every other device that's gonna come down the pike is gonna be compared to Sentinel. And it's, it's sort of like, well, all we need to show is we have a safe device and it works as well as Sentinel, Sentinel but we're kind of finding out that Sentinel doesn't really work very well. So it's, it's, it's a dilemma. It's a dilemma for the regulators and for those trying to design clinical studies. Payers, CMS, you have to show clinical benefits. So, you know, you're going to have to do the 3,000 patient study and show that there is a reduction in stroke. For doctors, for all of us, well, we want to show that it's beneficial to the patient because we're talking to them and it has to be cost effective because we have to deal with our hospital administrators, right? And then guidelines. Guidelines are going to need the big randomized clinical studies to show that there is uh, clinical benefit. So again, in my mind, the future is here. It's in the second generation um, devices. Again, there's a whole host of these coming down the pike. Most of these are currently in clinical studies. I'm very pleased to say that this one, um, uh, we have, I think, 60 some patients in this study. And again, I'm, I'm very um, optimistic about this particular device just based on the way it works. I'm not gonna go into the details of all, you know, how these, the designs and stuff like that. But I wanted to kind of close out and, and talk about this because I think as we're thinking of how do we show that using these devices actually is helping patients. And that's what we have to show. We have to show benefit. We have to show superiority either compared to controls and even, I would say, compared to Sentinel. These are three patients. Uh, you've probably seen the slide. It's been shown everywhere. Three patients from the Sentinel trial, all with very different looking brain MRIs. These are actual MRIs. Um, and they all had a stroke. So when we look at these images and we're trying to sort out how to interpret brain MRIs, the lesion size count to location, et cetera, what are we supposed to be looking at? We have two failed trials uh, in terms of efficacy using, um, using diffusion weighted MRIs. So we need to better understand this metric um, if we want to use it as a surrogate. So this is what uh, we are currently working on, and, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be—I'm not violating any anything. I'm going to be presenting this at TCT, but I thought I'd, I'd try it out on this 
this group first. So you're getting the first look at this. So what we're doing here is these are all the trials that, um, that uh, my group has designed. So they're all like same methods, same assessment. Neuro neurologists go in before and after up to 30 days. Everybody's getting an MRI um, after the procedure at the same time frame, using the same protocol, the same call lab, the same adjudication. So it's like the methodology is absolutely consistent across all these studies. And what we have here, the, the dropout of MRI is very high, as you know, pacemakers, you know, they're too sick, they can't go, et cetera. So a lot of dropout, sadly, from imaging. But we have close to 500 patients here that have MRI and 97 have clinical follow-ups. So this is the largest data sets with, you know, all these um, assessments being done in such a consistent way. So isn't this a rich data set to be looking at our surrogate endpoint and trying to figure out um, what, what it means. Um, so very high level in this cohort, we have um, 33 strokes, 6.9%, 7%. Fatal disabling stroke is about half. Um, interesting, we looked at uh, uh, stroke recovery. So 6.6% of these 6.9 uh, actually recovered, 4% completely and incompletely to, you know, two and a half. MRI lesions, 85% had injury on MRI, and you can look, see here, based on different thresholds, the volume down here, um, and this is just on a per patient basis. So up to 500 cubic millimeters in about 10% of patients. That's still a lot. Okay, so that's the background. So now we're trying to slice and dice to try and see if brain MRI can actually predict stroke. That's the big question, right? So um, this is simply looking at the total lesion volume for patients that did not have a stroke versus in red, those that did have a stroke. So the first thing that jumps out is stroke patients have bigger lesion volumes, right? And that's good. So there is kind of like these, these curves do split. The problem is down in here. And what do we make of these small lesions, which is kind of like, you know, the, the whole issue. These devices seem to be causing more and, you know, we need to better understand the, the implications. So I'm going to go in a little bit of like, you know, stats here, but we looked at ROC. So as you know, our ROC, the area under the ROC curve is basically a method, a statistical method to see whether that measure is, can discriminate between events and no events, right? So what we're looking at here is the number of lesions, the uh, individual lesion volume and the total lesion volume. Any area under the curve that is between 0.8 and 0.9, that's just the stats behind this, means that you have excellent discrimination, all right? So we're looking at areas under the curve. So the total lesion number here is above eight, individual lesion below eight. The best is the total lesion volume of uh, 0.84. So this has excellent discrimination in identifying ischemic stroke at 30 days. We're making progress here. This is really important. We look at the cut points. What is the best cut point 
to determine higher sensitivity and specificity to determine whether that patient would have an ischemic stroke, and it's about 500 cubic millimeters. That's very helpful information for us. We did exactly the same thing looking at fatal and disabling stroke, fatal and disabling stroke at 30 days. And again, very same message here. We look at the number, the individual lesions, total lesion volume, and these are all excellent. They're higher thresholds, and the best one is, again, the total lesion volume. We're looking at a threshold here, depending on the method, of about 1,000. That, that's a big, big area. But nonetheless, this is really helpful because what this is telling us is that this surrogate endpoint is actually really clinically relevant, and we've never had this kind of uh, information. Again, more stats, I'm just going to sum it for you. Basically, what we're asking here is, is there a threshold of individual lesions below which we don't care? We can like not ignore them. It doesn't make one bit of difference. And in fact, the answer to that question is no. Um, what we're looking here is the odd, odds ratios of ischemic stroke versus the individual lesion volume cutoffs contributing to the total lesion volume. And if you look at these odds ratios, so it would seem like there's an increase, but if you look at the scale here, your odds ratio is going from 1.4 to 1.6, that's nothing. So there's really no threshold. This is looking at the logistic regression of the C statistic. And if, as you eliminate the small lesions, your it goes down, it's actually worse. So it, you have to look at everything. There is no threshold below which we should be ignoring these lesions. And I think that's important. And final data slide, I promise, this is looking at the, pro the probability of ischemic stroke at 30 days uh, based on total lesion volume. And you can see this as you uh, go to increasing lesion volumes, so does your risk of stroke. And again, we're very interested in this area, but again, you can see that it, it's always going up. So the message that we can glean from this um, analysis, which is so important for you know, the field, is that all any lesion is a bad lesion. And as you go to higher and higher volumes, great accounts, that is uh, predictive of ischemic stroke, and that's a, that's a bad thing. Um, so the quiz to you is, what do you prefer? If this was you, you were having your tablet procedure, do you prefer this one? You have bigger lesions but fewer, or do, you, or do you prefer this one? If you had to make the choice, you want multiple lesions, total lesion volume is pretty much the same, right? The answer is you want neither. None of these are good. You want to you wanna get rid of these. So hopefully with all the work that we're doing and all these new devices, et cetera, we'll be able to to solve this problem, or at least reduce the problem. So a lot of takeaways, uh, just to sum up without reading these. Number one, I think, again, it's a mechanical problem after TAVA. The rates are consistent. Surgery has higher stroke rates compared to TAVA. I think that's the first thing we can say. In terms of the only device that's available to us on the market, Sentinel, it's safe, effectiveness, you know, you know, we've seen a tiny little reduction in disabling stroke. That's good. That's sort of promising, I think, for the future. There's a lot of second generation devices. And what I ended up he with here is um, from a trial design perspective, I think we can push and look at injury 
as a surrogate of um, ischemic stroke. And now we have the evidence that that is a valid endpoint. Thank you. And I'm happy to take any questions. The quiz, the quiz, what is the name of that mountain? Do you need to see the picture again? Mont Blanc. He got it. He's got it. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> All well, right. That was, that was lucky. <laughs> Didn't ask you the height of the mountain. <laughs> oh, I did. I just live in that area ah, for okay. a while. Okay. Well, listen, that was absolutely fabulous. Um, you, you can see that it, it's such a treat to have literally the folks that that take us to the next level, that help us think through, you know, how to design the new trials that we end up using. Um, but let's see if there are any questions from the audience. Um, I know we've got a lot of, see Dr. Giuliano. So Greg is an interventionist, does TAVR, directs our inpatient cardiology program. Recently, Thanks for a, a, an excellent, um, really scientific look at this data. Um, I have so many thoughts going through my head right now, so bear with me as I try to make this into a question. Uh, I will disclose that I'm in the group that would rather avoid a stroke and probably prefer to die than have a disabling stroke. And, and I think that's relevant to my question. Um, it, it, it concerns me that um, the FDA made a decision based on their gut and, and showing the FDA pictures when you have a dearth of data is problematic to have a decision that was made because uh, um, I think all around the country we saw patients then being marketed to with a negative trial and then choosing locations where they said, hey, we're going to use Sentinel and we're not going to go to you guys because you're not using Sentinel. That's that's a very concerning impact, I think, of what happened. And I'm wondering if you think that may have occurred because of either undue industry influence at the FDA um, or biases in academic publications of the trial and the interpretation of the trial. Um, and, and, and try to parallel that with how we have very strong evidence with distal embolic protection and vein grafts, yet that was just downgraded uh, from a, a, a class indication, um, primarily because people thought it was too hard to use, but we have strong efficacy evidence from randomized trials, yet we have this device approved based on negative data. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think all those points are really important. Um, you know, so so FD, when FDA is kind of stumped and they, they they review the data and they say, okay, here's we have a safe device, it's you know we we don't have any effectiveness. They actually get a panel together, as you know, so they they actually sort of take the decision to a vote to external people and they select those people. Um, based, you know, they exclude people that have conflict of interest. So I think that the process for evaluating the evidence is robust. And I think in this situation, it, it's challenging because you see that there's debris, patients are in there coming, you know, there's a public forum where patients are brought forward and they tell their story. You know, I, I came in and I had a terrible stroke and if that could have been prevented, you know, so I mean, it's the, the case in stroke, if, you, if you're thinking about um, 
I think the reason why it went in that direction is because, again, I mean, it was shown to be safe and in the off chance that this is actually beneficial and look at all this, this stuff that's in there, um, you know, and I think that's what swayed the panel. So the panel was the one that kind of went to the vote and said, you know, yeah, we, we, we you know, we approve this. We, we agree that this should be approved. And that is what goes back to the FTA as a recommendation. So I, I agree with you. I think we're in a very difficult position now as we look at the, the new devices. And I can tell you the experience that I had with TriGuard, which as I was living this, the, the experience and I was seeing that this device was actually causing harm and working with a company that would not let go. And I actually extracted myself from the process because I was ethically absolutely against what was going on. So I, at the end of the study, you, you won't see me at that panel. There was a panel for Trigod. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, so, so it's a problem. I mean, and that's, what, that's the situation they're in now. And I think that's a very difficult one to deal with. And again, I mean, I think there is uh, probably, I, if I had to guess, I think at the end of the day, when, when uh, the UK study is done, we will see a small benefit. I, I actually believe in the disabling stroke benefit. It's small. Uh, so I don't think this device is doing any harm, but I just think that, you know, the cost-benefit ratio is just not there. So. Well, um, no, that was, a, that was a great question. Um, I, I do want to kind of zoom out a little bit um, because I think, you know, a 0.8% reduction in disabling stroke uh, in that trial um, that was statistically significant. And I think what you taught us today that's pretty alarming, um, and I know some of our TAVR team is here, is that 85% of the time by diffusion-weighted MRI, you get some embolization. And Glenn and I were chatting that there's a lot of things we do in the cath lab. Now, remember, this is lower risks than with um, surgical aortic valve replacement, but still, there are a lot of things we do in the cath lab, even crossing the aortic valve with aortic stenosis. There's lots of data that we, we cause these microemboli. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the analysis you showed us, the most recent one, where you've actually looked at that curated data set and say that if your volume of overall debris in the brain is about, we were saying, what, the size of a sugar cube, a little less than one cubic centimeter, whether it's scattered or whether it's local, then you're going to have an ischemic stroke. Mm -hmm. We have invited some of our neurologists in the audience as well because the brain is a very complex place. So the question is, you know, where the heck does it land and what, the, what that area is doing? So there's a lot of complexity there. But bottom line is preventing embolization is good. Yeah. And, and that's why you're in the space because one way or the other, we need to kind of keep at it yeah. to try to figure out what's going to be safe and effective. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, it's impossible for these small, you know, startup companies, all the Emboliner and all those, you know, me too, not me too devices. I mean, they're, they're, some of them are great. You know, it, what's fun is like when, when you're really into the detail, you, you can actually, I, I can predict, I, I, I can say today, I predict which one's going to work and which one's not going to work based on how these things are designed. Whether I'm right or wrong, I think I'll, you know I hope to to be around to see that. But um, you know, I think that you know none of these devices will come to life if we have to do three thousand patient trials. So we have to come up with a different way 
of evaluating it. And I, you know, I don't agree with sort of using Sentinel as the predicate because I just don't think it's effective. And I, I yeah. think we need to be, do better than that. Well, I know, I know, I don't know if Ronnie, I, I know, um, I, I'd like to know if Ronnie Ramadan's in the audience um, because, great, uh, because I, I do want to um, just take a minute and, and maybe describe to the audience that the multiple steps and how the procedures evolved, mm -hmm. uh, because you showed that beautiful picture of that kind of calcific aortic valve and the idea of first kind of crossing it with a wire. And then certainly I remember in the early days we used to pre-dilate. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. And without protection, then you're crunching this thing against the wall and then you're deploying, then you're post-dilating in order to get a maximal benefit. And I loved your analogy on the vein grafts, right? Because we've, we've kind of lived through this. But ha has the procedure, Ronnie, evolved to a point where it's, it's sort of simplified in an effort to reduce that stroke risk? Um, uh, definitely the, the procedure has become a lot more efficient than it used to be, you know, like 10 years ago, right? I mean, the devices are a, a lot more, um, sort of friendlier to use and we've gotten better you doing TAVR, right? So, so I do think that's, uh, probably an element, but I, like, like Dr. Lansky said, I don't think that makes a difference, right? Like you said earlier. So operator experience does not really necessarily, uh, lead to reduction in stroke, um, initially we, when the device got approved, we ended up using it routinely on all our patients. And I think the, the selling point was the, That's the sentinel, the device. sentinel yeah. device. Yeah. Um, and then we went through this phase when we started saying, well, let's be more selective and think about higher risk patients, right? So let's do it in bicuspid patients, patients that have a high calcium score in the aortic valve on CT. Those in theory would predict more embolization. Um, patients that um, have a valve in valve, so they have more degenerated valves, so those probably will embolize more calcified aortas, right? So we start coming up with these reasons to use it selectively, but the data did not support that. Um, so I think most operators that I know, once the, the trial data came out, really shifted towards not using it at all. We still use it selectively in patients, for example, if we're doing... Um, electrosurgery like basilica, right? Because we don't know in those cases you lacerate, lacerate leaflets and you cause a lot of uh, injury. Um, so we, we still use it selectively, but I would say definitely not routinely. We've had, like uh, Greg mentioned, we've had patients that ask for it specifically. And since it's approved, you know, we use it. Um, you know, I think I, the, the, the point um, that I struggle with is, is there is evidence that it reduces the volume of umbolic events to the brain, right? And that, like you said, even if it's asymptomatic acutely, it does, it should mean something, right? And, and we've, you know, back in, in, you know, a few years ago, we're actually trying to think about designing a study to look at long-term outcomes of that in terms of cognition, um, you know, how would it affect these patients? And I think that's a very important question because I think a stroke probably we're not going to show reduction because the rates are, the prevalence is low and the rates are low. Um, and even if we do a large number of, you know, patients, like you said, the number needed to treat probably is not going to be, you know, it's going to be questionable. But I do think the long-term effects, 10, 15 years, um, is all this embolic events going to lead to um, early dementia, 
you know, decreased uh, motor function. I think that's going to be the key, especially as we treat more and more younger patients or low risk 70s that are going to live for a long time. So I'm just curious about um, if you have anything in mind in terms of looking at that specific question, like functional MRIs, neuropsych tests. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And and the, the other um, two more points I would like to add, I know it's a lot, but one is uh, to Dr. Samadhi's point, there is data that any manipulation in the aorta invasively, there is embolic events that will be caught if you do an MRI, right? So if you're doing a cath, a complex PCI, a, a, a cabbage, um, angiography, uh, you're going to find it. Um, so so that it's probably not just specific to TAVR, right? No, no, no. So it's I wonder possible. if, if yeah. looking at these devices from a stroke prevention in procedures that might have higher rates of stroke like cabbage or some other um, would be, you know, something else to look at. And the last uh, question is, um, you talked about how the stroke rate or the strokes with TAVR, right? It's not just during the procedure, right? You might have it up to three days. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you have an embolic uh, protection during the procedure, you're going to protect these. So what are your thoughts about the mechanisms of those delayed strokes? And, and how would you sort of yeah. prevent those? Yeah, all amazing <laughs> questions. <laughs> okay, so um, the first one was, so take your microphone back. Your first question was, because my short-term memory here. <laughs> well, mine is actually bad too. So uh, okay, well, that's good. That makes two of um, us. So we, uh, what was the first one? <laughs> well, well, let's let's focus. Let's. let's the there's also we were also time wise a little constrained. Oh, the functional, uh, the cognitive yeah. decline. So, yeah, down the, the line. cognitive one. So we, you know, in all our studies, we did a huge amount of neurocognitive evaluation. It is such a complicated space. Um, the patient population is an older patient population. Most of the tests that you do, you have like what you call a ceiling effect. The patient going in have kind of capped the cognitive, um, you know, abilities. And it's just extremely difficult to show a difference over time because cognitively based on age and other confounders, they're only going to get worse. So, so that's a massive challenge. When you work with the, the neurocognition PhD folks, which I've done, they come up with tests that take hours and hours and hours to do. And they, they're really into it. You know, it's like, you, you know, they draw circles and all this stuff, which is amazing, which is great. Um, but it's really difficult for patients to actually do those. And then when you come to the interpretation, you've got hundreds of Test, independent test. So we did that. We did that in our first study. And yeah, you're going to find some p-values in there, but that's not science. You know, it's like you need one test, one, you know, way to compare this. And that's not how the brain functions because, yeah, the brain is really complicated. So, so I don't think we've... Um, cracked the nut as to well, how to assess maybe that. Maybe the brain of structuralists are less complicated. <laughs> maybe. They're more, they're more <laughs> less <Very> simple. <laughs> or interventionalists in general. Yeah. But, but I think your point is absolutely spot on. We need longer term um, trials to be able to understand what happens long term if you, have a if you have a big enough study. I pitched when protected TAVA was happening, I pitched 
to Boston to include that. And I just wanted like a simple way of measuring. And I didn't know that they were doing 72 hours. I was hoping that they'd do some longer term follow-up. Didn't happen. So that's that. That needs to be funded by government. Um, and that's a tough, you know, it's tough to sell those trials and, and the expense. So that's number one. Um, you're absolutely right that all procedures have some you know, uh, extent of, and, and that actually has been well studied. I mean, it's varying degrees. The reason why we're so interested in TAVI is because it seems to be the most rich patient population. There have been some uh, randomized studies in cabbage patients. Um, again, I think it's trial design, but both of those, Mike Mack presented them, I forget the names of the devices, but both failed. They looked at two different devices, but they were looking at lesion counts and stuff like that, but didn't work. And then you made a, a third point, and I forget what it is. The timing of uh, stroke. Oh, the time, yeah. That's actually a really, really good one. So, you know, I, I, uh, I work with a lot of these companies, and I always say, you know, when you're... Um, when you're planning the procedure, what we should be doing because of that time delay, we should be leaving that protection device in for as long as possible, right? So typically what happens, you go in, you put your protection device, you do TAVA, and then you yank everything out. And I don't think we should be doing that. I think we go in, you put the protection device in, you do your TAVA, you pull out TAVA and you sit. And you only pull that out. I mean, I think it's worth waiting. I, I don't know why we're seeing stroke, um, you know, at three days. It could be that there's an embolus and that's the time to manifestation of the clinical symptoms. And, and or it could be just a delayed um, embolus. So I don't really know. I mean, I, or, or both, you know, is, is quite possible. Well, well, I think there are a lot of other fantastic questions, but I, I know that we're a little bit over time. So if any of you have questions, please come down and grab Dr. Lansky, and then we're going to go do that little interview session where you're going to capture this. Um, and I don't know if uh, Dr. Ramadan or Dr. Henry or Dr. Juliana, one of those guys around to help with that. But anyway, thank you very much for an incredible talk. Thanks, Alexander.